All right, so could you guys imagine if I just said, hey, uh, what, what uh, sort of president do you want? Like if I just made it open forum right now, this is just an illustration, so don't do it, but open forum right now, if I just said, hey, what sort of president you want? And, and people would begin to, to shout out like what sort of president they want. Like right away, if I did that and we were all being honest and open with ourselves, you, I, names, right? It would be like, well, this person I want to be president or that person I want to be president. Or maybe qualities would get shouted out if I said, what sort of president do you want? Like, I would like a kind president. I'd like a just president. I'd like wise one. I'd like a fiscal one. I, or maybe even identities. Maybe you'd say, well, I want a female president, or I want a Christian president, or I want a president of a certain ethnicity, or you, you might begin also probably to shout out party, party affiliations and political parties and go, well, I want them to be from this party or from that party or a different party, or, or you might even just go, I don't even care about all that. I just care about actual things happening in our world. And so you might pick a platform, an issue, and say, I want a president that cares about this issue, okay? And so if I asked that question and people began to shout out, if I asked that question, no matter what, if we were honest with ourselves, really, we, there would be all kinds of things that we would shout out because there's something in each of us, there's this like innate thing in each of us here where we go, I know what a good president would be. Like, I, I know what it would take to be a good president. I know the qualities. I know what a good president is, right? Where there's just something innate in us that we think we know what it means to be a good leader and the sort of leader that this country needs. And so we, if I asked that question, there would be all sorts of things shouted out because there's this innate thing in us. Now, in Jesus's day, there was kind of something similar going on with Israel. You see, they had this term called the Christ, and this term, the Christ, was the anointed one. We've talked a lot about it throughout the book of John because it's used a lot to describe who Jesus is. And this term, the Christ, was the anointed one, which is what the Old Testament gave to this title of this person that God would send to restore Israel. And then what happened in Jesus' day is different people in Israel would say, well, I think he's going to restore Israel this way, or I think he's going to restore Israel that way. And then some people thought that Christ would actually be a king, like a, an actual king for the people of Israel. And so everybody in Israel had all sorts of views of what the Christ should be, or what kind of king he would be. And, and we're going to be looking at this passage today where we see these different groups of people coming together and they all have different opinions about who the Christ is. And they all have different opinions about who the king is and what sort of king he is. And John, the author, the disciple, he points out a little line from one of the old prophets to help us understand who Jesus really is, the sort of king he actually is. And so this is what I, what, what I hope for today. We're going to go through this passage together as, as Jesus enters Jerusalem just days before he's going to be killed. My hope for us today is that we, we go through that passage together, look at that together, and then I want us to kind of zoom in on that Zechariah verse and see what it tells us is the sort of king that Jesus is. 
And I think it will kind of spit in the face a little bit of the king that, that some of them expected and spit in the face of kind of the leaders we want and those kinds of things. And I hope that, that what we do, though, at the end of the day is bow the knee to Jesus and not to some made-up version of Jesus. Okay? So that's my hope. Let's hop into this passage we're going to be in John chapter 12. If you're new here, we love to go through books of the Bible. Right now, we're going through the book of John. This summer, we're going to be going through uh, Nehemiah together. And so John chapter 12 is where we're at today. We're going to start in verse 9. So it'll be on the screen. Follow along with me. It says this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. All right, so Jesus as he's entering Jerusalem, as he's getting into Jerusalem, we see we've got a mixed crowd of people. We've got some of the Lazarus crowd, right? The Lazarus crowd where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Some of that crowd goes, you know what? I, I haven't seen a guy raise somebody from the dead. I'm going to kind of follow him around for a bit. Just see what happens. What else could happen? And so some of that crowd is following Jesus. Then we're going we're gonna to see in the a later part of this passage, and we've already seen it a little bit, there's probably some of the Passover crowd coming to see and, and check out Jesus. Because for the Jewish people, Passover was this celebration, remembering what God had done in the Exodus story, and, and they often would pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate it together. And so you have people coming from Jerusalem, joining this crowd around Jesus, and then you even got the religious leaders kind of watching from afar and going, ah, oh, great, they're following this guy, right? They're, so you got all kinds of people kind of converging on Jesus, and then this crowd that, that seems to especially like Jesus... They pick up palm branches, and they begin shouting things. They begin saying, Hosanna, which means, God, save us now. God, save us now. And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, they, and then they even say, and even he's the king. That's what that means. He's even the king of Israel. This is the king of Israel. So you have these people with these palm branches that are kind of shouting revolution through this man. And we know that they're shouting revolution through this man because, because palm branches back then became like this nationalistic symbol for Israel or even just for parts of Israel where they, they, the palm branches kind of represented some different times in Israel where rebellions happened. Okay, if you remember Judah Maccabean, who he, he cleared out the temple, restored the temple a, a, a few hundred years before Jesus. There, there was another guy named Simon the Maccabean, and he, he actually kind of kicked out all the occupying forces and, and, and allowed Israel to be its own uh, like nation, country for a time. And when both those guys did those things, and there was a lot of people that had Maccabean on the end of their name, which really just kind of means rebels, when both those guys did those things to help restore Israel in certain ways, people took palm branches and thanked them for it. People took palm branches and celebrated them for it. So, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem and people are taking palm branches, it's like they're saying, revolution through this man. 
Let a revolution come through this man, right? Well, you didn't know you were making your kids do that in church all these years, right? They were going revolution through Jesus all these years. And so now you're disappointed that you did that to your kids, okay? But that's what they were doing. And then John makes a little note about what's happening. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So this is all happening, and I just imagine the disciples, for the last few years, you know, they've had a lot of run-ins, and this just is like a weird, different scene for them, right? Like, they're not used to people saying these sorts of things. They're used to people picking up rocks to try to kill Jesus, right? And I love that uh, John goes, hey, here's what's going on. And he quotes Zechariah the prophet. And he actually probably also quotes Isaiah, some people think. This was not uncommon in that time to, to quote, or even in the New Testament, to quote two prophets at once. And so he quotes Isaiah, but mostly Zechariah. And he says, this is a, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy. Jesus is doing what God said he would do. Jesus is this king who has come sitting on a donkey's colt. And then I love his honesty where he's like, yeah, at the time, we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> like, we were just kind of like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, right? Like, what? Well, maybe should, should I get a palm branch? Like, they just, they didn't know what was going on until later when he dies and resurrects. And so that's what, where the disciples are at in this story. Now, let's look at another group, this, the group, the Pharisees especially, who we've already seen him so far, but let's see him again. It says this in verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the, the world has gone after him. And so you have Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey, and then you have all kinds of people in the crowd, and the Pharisees who kind of were these like powerful religious figures who they also didn't want Rome out or didn't want Rome to control them. I, I find this fascinating that the Pharisees, they had the same goal as the palm branch wavers, but they just don't like Jesus. <laughs> They're kind of like, yeah, well, sure, we have the same goal, but he's not our guy. He's argued a bit too much with us. He's done too many things wrong. And so it's kind of funny because they're kind of just at the end of their own rope with Jesus. And they see this happening with Jesus. They see Jesus being exalted in this way. And what they do is go, ah, see, this is exactly what we said would happen. We didn't do anything. And now here he is. And the whole world is going after him. It's hilarious because there's probably, I don't know, like 200 people is my guess. Like, I don't, I, there's no research on that. But there's probably not that many people. And they're going, the whole world, they're just being super dramatic. And it's ironic to me because they have the same goal as the palm branch wavers. And yet they're just like, not like this. Not this guy. Called us whitewashed tombs that hurt our feelings. Like, like there's, they, they just, they can't stand Jesus. Now, here's something is interesting about uh, this passage, this, 
this triumphal entry story. It's in all four Gospels. It's in all four Gospels. That's kind of rare. There's a lot of stories that are in all four Gospels, sure, but not a lot, too. Like, sometimes there's, like, little, especially little side stories like this, they don't always make it into all four Gospels because different Gospel writers were writing from their perspectives or really trying to make points about Jesus that the other Gospel writers weren't trying to make about Jesus. And so, uh, but this story is in all four Gospels, and so this story is significant. And it's also interesting to me to see, like, do you see how politically charged this story is? Oh, none of you see it. But that's okay. Oh, politics again. It's politically charged. It's a politically charged story because you got all kinds of people wanting power, wanting authority, wanting political things to happen through Jesus. Right? The palm branches aren't just the little sweet things our kids wave. They are signs of revolution. Celebrations of revolution. The Pharisees are going, not, we want a revolution, but not through this guy. This is a politically charged passage. And so I go to all the gospel writers, I go, why did you include this politically charged passage? And I think John clues this in by quoting Zechariah. Because we could just watch this scene and we could go, well, what does this mean for us? And we could come to some of the same conclusions as the palm branch wavers. Or we could come to the same conclusions as the Pharisees. We could, we, we could easily do that. But John helps us out by quoting Zechariah and saying, this is who Jesus is. Because Zechariah says, this, there is a sort of king that is coming. And this is what he'll do. And this is who he'll be. And so this is what I want us to do. Is I want us to go to Zechariah. I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. And then we're going to just spend some time looking at the sort of king that Jesus is. Right? We all have a vision for the sort of kings we want, the leaders we want. And what's bad is sometimes those desires we have, we put on Jesus when that doesn't describe him well at all. And so I want us to look at Zechariah, and then we're going to talk about four, four different ways that Zechariah points to Jesus' kingship and, and the sort of king that he is. Okay? So Zechariah 9, 9 through 12 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. This is the sort of king that Jesus is. So a few things. What, what is Zechariah telling us? What is John telling us about Jesus? And the first thing is this. Jesus is the actual king we all, we all want. 
Okay, Jesus is the actual king we all want. So Israel, Israel, they had a deep desire for a king. Kind of followed them for many, many years. They had a deep desire for a king that would come in and free them in all sorts of ways. But their desire was misplaced. They wanted an earthly, weak, small king. Their desire actually represented a deep desire in them to have God as their king. That's who they actually wanted as their king. And so when you see even in the triumphal entry, all these different people doing these different things, showing these different sorts of desires for a king, Zechariah helps us to see, listen, Jesus is the actual king. And, and he's not a small king. He's not like the Maccabeans. He's going to bring a sort of restoration that covers the planet. He's going to bring a sort of rule that, that covers the planet. That everyone will be brought into his kingdom. He's not a small earthly king over just one place or one city or one state or one nation. He's a cosmic king. He's king over all. I think so often what you and I want is we want small kings. We want a small king that rules over a portion of land in small ways for us. That's misplaced. What you actually need is Jesus as your king. Worse, I think this is what we often do in the church, is we convince ourselves some small king or president or leader or ruler is Jesus' sole vision for kingship in our life. That's misplaced. Jesus is the actual king. The king you desire, the leader you desire, that thing how we can all say, hey, here's what I want in a king. All those desires, if the, some of them might be good, some of them are probably misplaced, all of those deep down are desire for Jesus as your king. Jesus is the actual king of all. Stop fooling yourselves, church. Stop being wooed by small, weak, earthly kings. Because Jesus is the actual king. Hey, I think that's the first thing Zechariah points us to. The second thing Zechariah points us to is this. Is Jesus is going to subvert every earthly kingdom. Okay, I'm going to say it again so I'm clear. Jesus is going to subvert every earthly kingdom, right? As we look at this passage and we look at how John notes in Zechariah, the palm branch wavers didn't quite get it, and the Pharisees certainly didn't quite get it. Jesus is going to subvert every kingdom. He subverts the people that are super stoked on him, praising him, and he subverts the Pharisees who want to kill him. Jesus is going to subvert each and every earthly kingdom. If Jesus is king, if Jesus is Lord, which is a political statement, especially in that day, by the way, that means that Jesus will subvert every kingdom. Jesus isn't going to save your earthly kingdom. He's not going to save it. He is going to save you. And he's going to bring you into his kingdom. You hear that? 
Jesus isn't going to save your earthly kingdom. He's going to save you, and he's going to bring you into his kingdom. That's the sort of king he is. His, even just declaring Jesus is Lord subverts each and every earthly kingdom there is. It just does. It is a political statement. It was known as a political statement, and this is what ends up getting him killed in part. is because people were saying he's Lord. Let, let me flesh that out a little bit more with a quote from Timothy Cho. He's an editor of Faithfully magazine. He says this, to be a Christian is to be political, but not partisan. The Christian faith is centered on a political declaration that Jesus is Lord of the cosmos. His kingdom reshapes the way we understand the good life and the interactions between people in community. So to be clear, what I'm saying is, is this. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord is a statement that affects all of life including our politics. But Jesus is king is a statement that also says Jesus' kingship is never going to be partisan. In this country, we've really convinced ourselves Jesus is a donkey or an elephant. Right? But Jesus' Lord subverts donkeys and elephants. Right? Half the room, amen, half the room, amen, right? <laughs> so listen, listen to me, and we'll see if we have a church next week or not. But <laughs> that means the Democrat vision of a kingdom will be subverted by Jesus and his kingship. That means the Republican vision of a kingdom will be subverted by Jesus and his kingship. And we go, amen, yeah, that's my Jesus. I'm following him. Now, here's a test. Here's a test. When I say, hey, what about the political party that is your favorite? What about that political party that you most identify with? What about that political party? What does Jesus subvert about that political party? And I'll ask that sometimes. And it's crickets. Is this, what, this is my representative of crickets, but uh, it's just quiet. Nothing. I'll sometimes about, oh, I got to do some research on that. Do you? If we begin to have a hard time identifying how Jesus subverts the political kingdoms, earthly kingdoms that we identify with most, we might have an idolatry problem. We just might. If it's not easy for you to critique the earthly kingdoms that you participate in and see how Jesus is Lord over those kingdoms and how he would subvert them, I would just say, maybe you need to read the Bible more. Maybe you need to pray more. Maybe you need to spend some honest time with yourself looking at yourself in the mirror and going, maybe I've made an idol out of my favorite political party. Jesus is Lord is a political statement. I hope you guys come to church next week. Church, let's be united under Christ, okay? Not under our affiliations with the earthly kingdom. Do you know the church is like just going through something right now across our, our country, right? And a lot of churches are becoming churches that 
say, hey, to be in our doors, you have to affiliate with this party. And you can't, and, and, and it's happening on both sides. Isn't that sad? Listen, I'm all for saying, hey, there's problems with this party, there's problems with that party. I'm all for it. But too often as Christians, we go, there's only problems with that party and none with the party that I'm part of. That's a problem, church. Because I'll I'll tell you this, if Jesus' hope for his kingdom is one of the political parties in America, I'm I'm done. (laughs) Like, I don't want that. All right, thank you. There will be one at church next week. Jesus will subvert every earthly kingdom. That's what the triumphal entry is showing us. That's what Zechariah shows us. Okay, what else about Jesus? What else does Zechariah point to at the sort of king that Jesus is? Jesus is a humble king. Jesus is a humble king. Kings would often ride into places on war horses. Whether it was to take over a city or free a people, they would ride into a city on a war horse, not a donkey, right? Listen, some animals are majestic and some are not, okay? An eagle, it's majestic, right? I see an eagle and I feel like praying, okay? I'm sure that's wrong, but that's, I just see an eagle, it's just majestic to me. I see a pigeon, I'm like, no. I feel like praying for the diseases that are near me. Like, that's, it's a different sort of prayer, right? Pigeons are not majestic. Pigeons are the, the, the bird version of me. Like, they're just, they're not, hey, don't laugh too hard. Pigeons are not majestic. It's the same with horses and donkeys, right? I don't know if you've ever been around horses. If you look into a horse's eyes, there's just something like, you're like, is magic happening right now? Like, I don't, you're a majestic animal. A donkey is not. Like if you're around a donkey, you're, it's just like funny. Like, this is a funny creature. And yet, this is the animal that Jesus chooses to ride in on as king. And not just a donkey, a young donkey. Uh, Do you hear that? A donkey going through puberty. (laughs) That's the sort of donkey that, that Jesus chooses to ride in on to declare the sort of king that he is. And Zechariah juxtaposes that with a war horse. So we know indeed that Jesus is trying to say, I'm not going to ride a war horse in, I'm going to ride a young donkey in. So what does that tell us about Jesus? Zechariah spells it out. Jesus is a humble king. He's a king that lowers himself. He's a king that the way he rules, the way he establishes his kingship is through lowering himself. In, th- in, in showing how humble he is, how gentle he is. Jesus doesn't need a war horse because Jesus isn't coming to Jerusalem to get into a fight. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem lowly because the way he's gonna, going to establish his kingdom is by serving us, by taking on pain, by taking on death, by taking on the consequences of our sin. That's who Jesus is as king. Think of another place in Matthew where Jesus says, come to me, everybody that's weary and heavy laden. And he says, why? Because he is gentle and lowly in spirit. 
or gentle and lowly of heart. This is who Jesus is. Can you believe that? The, the, the Jesus who is the king that subverts every earthly kingdom and yet comes gentle and lowly in heart? Who is this king? Jesus is a humble king. And my question, my challenging question that I'm not even going to answer is, is that the sort of king you're looking for? Are you looking for a gentle, humble, and lowly king? Examine your heart. If it's not, what's going on there? How have you allowed the ways of this world to subvert the sort of king that Jesus is in your life? Okay. The, the last way, at least, that we'll look at where, of how Zechariah depicts Jesus as king is this, is Jesus is the bloodied, liberating king. Jesus is the bloodied, liberating king. Did you notice in Zechariah, he said that the, the king is going to come, he's going to set the prisoners free because of the blood of his covenant. Did you, did you notice that line in there? That the king is going to set the prisoners free by the blood of his covenant. What, what is that talking about? What's the covenant? What's the blood? What's going on there? To understand it, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 15, the, the beginning of the Bible. And God is beginning to unfold his plan to restore all things. He told Adam and Eve that he would send someone one day to crush the head of the serpent. But then he takes this guy, Abraham, and he, and he says, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And this is going to be part of how you are going to be a blessing to all the world, a blessing to all the nations. This is going to be part, the beginning of my plan to restore everything. And so God begins to set a covenant with Abraham, which in recent years, as we've uncovered more and more about covenants in the ancient world, covenants were very often between kings and their fealty. Kings and the people that they would serve. And so I don't know exactly how it would work if it would be king and all these people make a deal or king and a representative of the people make a deal. But essentially a covenant would go like this. A king would say, hey, I'm going to be your king. I'm going to rule as king in these ways. And you as my people are going to be my subjects in these ways. And the people would like agree to it. And they would say, let's get into this covenant where we have this king that can rule over us and provide things for us that we can't pro provide for ourselves. And the people would say, and we will, as your people will do these things to uphold our end of the covenant. And what they would do back then is they would cut up animals. They would cut up animals and they'd lay them out and they'd make a path with these animals. And the king and, and probably the representative of the people would be, is my guess, or maybe all the people, would walk through these animals. They would walk through these animals and the, the, the message was this, it's clear. They were saying, if either of us breaks the covenant... May we be torn limb from limb. If either of us breaks this sort of covenant, this covenant, may we be torn in two. That's the, how powerful these covenants were. So God takes Abraham. And he says, I want to make a covenant with you. And he says, Abraham, get the animals. So Abraham gets the animals. He, he, he cuts them up, and he lays out a path with the animals. And then this is what God does. He puts Abraham to sleep. 
He puts Abraham to sleep, and then God takes a, a torch and a flaming pot to represent him, and they just kind of float through this path while Abraham stays asleep and never goes through the path. Do you know what God was saying to Abraham? He was saying, I'm making a covenant with you that even if you don't uphold your side of the covenant, I, God, will be torn apart. So when Zechariah says that there's a king coming who's going to uphold the blood of his covenant, he's remembering that God said to Abraham, hey, even when you mess up, even when you can't uphold your side of the covenant, I will not allow you to be ripped apart, but I will allow myself to be ripped apart. I will allow my blood to be shed for you. John knows what he's doing when he's referencing this passage. He wants us to think about this. He wants us to think about the fact that God promised that his blood would be shed for anyone that follows him, that anyone that's in covenant with him, when they don't uphold their side of it. And John knows that in a few short days, we're going to watch Jesus shed his blood. The connection is clear. Jesus' blood is God's blood. Jesus is upholding God's side of the covenant and Abraham's side of the covenant. He's allowing himself to be torn apart. Jesus' shed blood shows us that we have a bloodied, liberating king. Often kings would go in and they would shed blood, cause people to shed blood. Jesus is the sort of king that goes in and he allows his blood to be shed in order to establish his kingdom. Jesus is the bloodied, liberating king. His blood is what frees us. Zechariah, I don't know if he knew this at the time when he said it, but I know God knew it. He knew that we're all prisoners. We're all prisoners to sin. We're all enslaved by sin. And we need someone to save us from that. And the only one that can is God upholding the covenant on his own, pouring out his blood for you and for me. This is why we sing about Christ's blood so much. And it's creepy for new people. But it's because God's blood represents an ancient covenant with Abraham that's been extended to us. And that we get to be part of God's kingdom because Jesus is the bloodied, liberating king. You hate the kingdoms of this world. You feel imprisoned by this world. You feel imprisoned by your sin. The only way out is trusting in Jesus' blood. That his blood was shed to free you. The triumphal entry and the fact that Jesus really is king, and even though that people had mixed up views of what that meant, has huge implications for our life. Saying the statement, Jesus is king, is not just this fun, nice little thing. It has huge implications for our life. It will have huge implications when Jesus returns one day and establishes his kingdom wholly and truly. If Jesus is king, it means he's king over all of your life. 
If Jesus is king, it means he's the king you actually desire. It means that Jesus is going to subvert a lot of the earthly kingdoms that you like, that you love. It means we have to almost re-envision Jesus and his kingship because he comes in humbly, quietly, on a young donkey. It also means that when we say Jesus king, it means it's good news that we, we don't have to be bloodied to get into his kingdom but that he was bloodied so we could be part of his kingdom. He was bloodied so we could have the resurrection. He was bloodied so our sins could be forgiven. Jesus is king has huge implications for our life. And I fear too often we say Jesus is king has huge implications for that person's life or that person's life or that party's life. But Jesus is king has huge implications for this church's life. Jesus is king. May we see the sort of king that he is. And may we not subvert his kingship. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, help us. We like this idea that you're king, but we, we often like it more for others than for ourselves. God, help us with that. Convict us right now, God. Convict us. Help us to see where we've served earthly kingdoms or our desire for earthly kings have been a forgetting of who you are or an idolatry of something else. God, thank you for this church, that, that we're people that, that have all sorts of affiliations to earthly kingdoms. But let us not just be that. Let us be a church that's united under you as our king. Help us, Jesus. Jesus, I ask that as there's, there's people in here that, that are going, are you really my king? Is that really what's going on? That you would do something in their heart and cause them to realize that you're, you are their king. Jesus, let us be a church that lives under your kingship and your rule and your reign in the way that you want us to. Help us to re-envision your kingship where we need to re-envision it, just like the disciples did. God, thank you for being merciful to us. Thank you for being kind and gracious. Help us to love you, Lord. Help us to know your king. Amen.